When I entered Bible college, there was a certain girl that I really had my eye on. I was still young. I was in my teens, literally just straight out of high school. She met all the criteria, criteria that I was looking for. She liked the music I liked. She was a female. <laughs> that was about it, okay? I didn't, I mean, <laughs> there wasn't a lot. I was pretty desperate. So I really, really, really liked this girl. Really did. But I wasn't allowed to date the first year of Bible college. And so I had waited a whole year. And then that time, all of my friends, and they're like really more like brothers, like really close-knit guys. All of those guys were like, this is not a good idea for you. All of my mentors were like, Josh, this is really not a good idea for you. All the people that I didn't even want their advice but were, you know, very vocal about it and willing to speak into my life were like, Josh, this is not a good idea for you. But a year later, when I was allowed to date, I kept thinking about it, kept desiring, really wanted that relationship. And so I really started thinking about it and praying about it and God, not God, should I date, should God, please let me date this person. Those kinds of things, those, you know, biased prayers. And I went up to every single person that I considered a close advisor or friend or value their opinion and started sharing with them why I should date this person. Well, I've grown, she's grown, she likes the music I like, she's a female. Like listing all of these things of why we should, right? And one by one, they said, okay, 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 okay. And I am not going to tell you how that story ends. That's a different time. But can I tell you this, is that I thoroughly convinced myself that the timing was right, the person was right, even though a year beforehand, for an entire year, I knew that it wasn't right. I knew, I knew that the mentors and advisors and the friends around me, godly friendships, told me, no, it's not right. But I can look you dead in the eyes and tell you, I really believe that God's will is for me to date this person this year. Do you know what that's called, church? Rationalizing truth. Have you ever done that? Nobody's done that. You know what? Here's a good way, an indicator to figure that out. Rationalizing truth is usually the start of a really, really good story. It's the things that you tell people around the table. We're going into a holiday tomorrow. It's maybe the story that you're going to tell again and again of, you know, we thought we could make the jump. Or, you know, we didn't think that we would get caught. Or it's just a little bit of fun. It's usually something like that where you rationalize the truth. Here's a definition for you. To rationalize is to vise a self-satisfying but possibly incorrect reason for one's behavior, decision, or decisions with logical, plausible reasons, even if they're not true or appropriate. That's a long definition. It basically means this. You can talk yourself into believing something is true, even if it's not. You can talk yourself into believing something is a good idea, even if you know it's not a good idea. You understand what I'm saying? You understand where we're going with this today? Maybe your rationalization sounded like this. No one will ever know. Mom and dad won't be home. Who will really, really hurt? It's just a joke. The government already takes enough of my money. Or maybe it's a little bit like this. When you're looking at a movie or a TV show or a place to be. It's just a little bit of language. It's just a little bit of violence and gore. It's just a little bit of sex. It's just like a little bit. It's just a little bit of demonic stuff. It's not really going to hurt me, right? I wonder if you've ever rationalized something so much 
because you wanted it so bad, even if you knew it was the wrong thing to do. I have. Even if it's just as innocent as eating my fourth or fifth or sixth Reese's cup. You're already in it now, buddy. Like, what's the sixth one? You've already done four. Like, what's it really going to hurt at this point? From innocent to things that are not so innocent, from little consequences to big consequences, I've done things, I've rationalized truth in my life by the way I define it. You know what's really interesting about the Bible is that thousands of years later, we're talking about a nomadic Middle Eastern prince and we are still relating truths from his life to our life today. None of us can relate to the context of Abram. None of us are nomads. None of us are princes. None of us have flocks and herds and all these people traveling from place to place. But you know, the thing about people is that we really just gravitate around the same issues, same concerns, same desires. And so today we're continuing our look at Abram's life and continuing with another story. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 16, we're going to pick up our text here. Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took so Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened about ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. Today we look at that story. You look at it from far away. We look at it with hindsight. And we say, Abram, you are crazy. Sarai, you are crazy. Like Abram should have said, any personally rationally thinking through this would say, Abram, it's a trap. Get out. Just affirm her. Like, no, babe, you're enough. No, I don't need anything else. No, honey boo boo, you got it. That's all I need. You are everything. If we look at this from the outside view, we'd be like, Abram, are you crazy? We could, any person in this room, probably most of us don't have a licensed counseling degree, but any of us could go and say, Abram, not a good idea. Probably don't do that one. Unfortunately, though, Abram plays the goofy character from Disney. He says, well, shucks. It's a pretty bad impression. Anything to make you happy, honey. That's what you want me to do, I will. And he goes and he does this thing. He has, takes her as his wife. And us on Monday morning playing it back, just looking at it, we're like, Abram, what are you doing? But context is key here. And so I want to bring a little bit of context to the story before we keep going with the lesson today. You know, Sarai was well within her right to perform and have this ceremony done. Culturally, in the, con in the context, if a woman was barren, she could take a servant, give her as a wife, and basically use her as a surrogate mother. And the child would be considered hers. Genesis 33, and I'm reading out of the K uh, KJV here, it says... This is another example of a situation like this, a little bit later on. And she said, Behold, my maid Billa, go in unto her. She shall bear upon my knees that I may also have a children by her. The thought was, and some, some scholars use this, it's, they think that this verse and other contexts and things is that when the child was born, they would literally be born onto the lap of the wife. 
symbolically showing that this child is mine. Any woman that's ever carried a child would say, no way. It's a lot harder than just holding the baby, okay? There was like nine months of preparation there that I pushed my body through. I don't think so. But in this time, it was saying that I would use her as a surrogate mother and my shame will be removed. The promise will come forth. I will have a child. Even though this feels really foreign and unrealistic to us, Sarai is basically employing an old adverb that many of us have lived by. God helps those who help themselves. Sarai tries to usher in the promise and the word of God before God's timing and outside of God's control. Remember a few weeks ago, Genesis 15, 4, Abram received a direct word from God that he would have a child. Verse 15, 4, it says, The Lord told him, No, your servant will not be your heir. You will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And so we know that Abram's going to have a child. God just told him a little bit ago, a few years ago. He promises Abram a child. But if you look at that, God just talks about Abram. There's no mention of Sarah. And so it would be really easy to take a few steps back and to see the rationalization process that Sarah starts thinking about. There's this natural biological talk, clock that's ticking and running out of time. And it's become very, very evident to Sarah that she cannot have a child. If we remember culturally, having a child was the greatest honor and purpose of women in this time. It was seen as their duty to carry on the lineage of the family, to pass on the generations of inheritance, to move the family forward. And it wasn't just a heartache and a heartbreak situation if you couldn't have a child. It was actually shameful. People would say, wonder what sin she committed, that God would withhold this blessing from her. And so she would feel not just the desire to have a child, but also that desire of God, what did I do wrong? Lord, what have I done? And so Sarai starts thinking about this and saying, God says Abram will, but he doesn't mention my name. Perhaps there's a different way. Perhaps there's something else that we're supposed to be doing. Perhaps we're supposed to be doing something that we're not. Why hasn't this happened yet? Is there another way? Perhaps it's time we use this custom, use a surrogate mother to have a child. Before we judge Abram, and we judge Sarai for doing this, I want you to think back right now. I want you to think back to your most recent mistake. Something that you did that you know was wrong, but you chose to do it anyways. Why did you do it? Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was just longing or desire. Maybe it was just rushing something in. Maybe it was scared of your identity. A lot of these things apply to Sarai. And so the long waiting, the desperation, the longing, the desire, it fuels her to rationalize the decision to do something that is outside of God's will. To rush and to usher God, to push him to move when he's not moving how she thought how she wanted him to. Take my servant and have a child. 
Feeling all this and more, Sarai and Abram rushed God, force his promise. But again, we've talked about this before. There's a distinct lack of conversation here with God. Abram, the one that's had visions and dreams and spoken with God, takes this very, very important decision. And there's that lack of prayer of saying, Lord, is this your will? Lord, is this how you want me to go about this? God, you, this, you promised me this, but it hasn't happened yet. Are we supposed to go about it this way? Abram rushes God. And if we're honest, we really know what it's like to force an issue. All of us at times have put a thing before a person. We prioritize a task over a relationship. We've let desire lead us instead of self-control. We've chosen to control our circumstances versus trusting others. And if you've ever done that, as simple as trying to get out the door, this is my fault. This is where one of the places that I struggle, guys. If I know I have to be someplace at a certain time, no person in my family or on the road matters more than getting there on time. I don't care if you have shoes. I don't care if you need to eat food. I don't care if you need to use the restroom. I don't care if you can't, like you're just driving slow in a buggy and a horse or whatever. Get out of the way so we can get there on time. I rush people and put a task over a person. Anytime I need to get out the door, I'm in danger of this. Church, people are our business. One pastor said it to me this way. He said, and it's always, once he said that to me, it's always stayed in the forefront of my mind. He said, Josh, we are in the people business. Always prioritize people over tasks. Never let tasks become a distraction between you and a person. Whenever we rush things, whenever we prioritize tasks or anything over a person, we lack love for them. What you're going to see in a little bit is that Abram and Sarai rush God, impatiently usher in something that was supposed to take a little bit longer. And because of that, there's relational fallout. When you rush something, there's no love in you. John Mark Comer says it this way, if we look at our study a few months ago, there is no love in hurry. Haste and hurry, rushing impatience, impatience, they're all at enmity or at war, animosity with loving people well. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says it this way, love is patient and kind. It gives us those two things, patience and kindness. I can prove this really quick. Mia, where are you? I told you I was going to talk about you today. <laughs> if you go to the movie theater, you go to the Marcus movie theater, you're welcome in, you're ushered in. Mia works there. Say hello to her next time you're there. And as soon as you're sitting down, the movie comes on. Maybe it's really good opening day. You're clapping and laughing and crying with everybody. But what happens as soon as the lights come on? Lights come on, and there's two people at the front of the stage by the screen with a big trash can of room. And then as you go out, there's two people right by the door with a big trash can and pointing this way. Have you ever felt the invitation after a movie to just sit 
and to just talk about it and to revel in it. No, as soon as that person, I see that person there, I'm like, Amy, get the kids. I'll meet you in the car. We got to get out of here. Because their whole thing is we've got to clean this. We've got to turn this place around to get the next people in. Please get out. Please get out. Please, please get out. Mia, don't. No, stop. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) Then I've been hurt by untrained people. (laughs) When you rush people, there's no love in you. And when you rationalize and force God to do something outside of his time, you show a lack of trust in your relationship with God and prioritizing a thing over a person over a relationship. Whenever we rush people, whenever we have impatience, relationships are at risk. In the physical, I can make my family feel like the task is more important than they are. In the spiritual, I show that, God, I would rather control my circumstances than trust you. I'm going to say that again. In the physical, if we rush things or are impatient with things, we show people that we would rather get the task done or the thing accomplished than have a relationship with them. And in the spiritual, we show God that I would rather control the circumstances, control my life, than trust you accomplishing it in your time. Because of this, Aram and Sarai create real baby mama drama in their life. Which is the title of today's sermon, by the way, Baby Mama Drama. You can write that down someplace, put it in the margins of your Bible. But if you read Genesis 16, 4 through 6, it says, But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to uh, treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, Look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. This woman was treated so roughly that she would rather brave the desert in a pregnant state, leave the safety, leave the protection, leave the provision of the group, and just try to brave it on her own. One person's decision, and I'm not faulting Sarai here, this was fueled by a longing and deep desire and years of pain waiting for a promise from God to happen that just seems delayed. They make one quick decision, one snap judgment call. And after that, you see the relationship after relationship after relationship get hurt. Because of that decision, it leads to physical and verbal and emotional abuse absentee father, suffering to the point of almost dying from dehydration, deep family wounds, and thousands of years of deep hurt and pain. God answers his promise to Abram, but to this day there's still deep-seated tension from the descendants of Abram's family because of this one decision. And this is the thing that I really want you guys to get out of this, is that rushing always jeopardizes relationships. When we are impatient with people, we demonstrate a lack of love. And when we are impatient with God and rush his promises, we demonstrate a lack of trust. Recently, I got a motorcycle. I'm sorry, that's a lie. It's not a motorcycle, it's a scooter. Recently, I got a scooter. 
And it's like, you know, a zippy scooter, but it's still a scooter. I used to ride a few years ago, rising gas prices, had me and Amy talking a little bit, and we decided to just go ahead and get back on the wheels again a little bit, back on the road. And so as I was looking, I wanted to ease in a little bit, and I found this scooter, it's pretty cool, I decided to go for it. But I gotta say, it just does not have the feel of a motorcycle. I feel a little bit embarrassed when I get the motorcycle wave, the under the handlebars, left hand, left. I feel like a little bit, I kind of wait for them to initiate it, because I'm like, I don't want to overstep my boundaries here, like, I know it's a scooter. But so the bike, it's zippy, it goes pretty fast, it's a lot of fun, there's no gears, you just twist it and go and stuff, but it's, it's still a little bit light, okay? It's a little bit lighter than what I was used to back when I had a bike. And so I took it out, I just got it a couple weeks ago, I took it out for the first time, and I was running a little errand in town. And so I come up to this light, and nobody's there. It's just me at this light in the kind of cornfields, and I'm waiting, I'm sitting, I'm waiting, I'm sitting. It's a minute, and two minutes, three, four, five minutes have gone by, and five minutes of Six Flag is like great. Five minutes at a red light, you literally are seeing your life pass before your eyes. You're thinking about every mistake you've ever made. Like, what is happening? So I'm sitting there like, why is this light not going? I'm getting impatient and just kind of, you know, just... It doesn't really sound like that. That's about as manly as that thing gets. Okay. And finally, this little minivan pulls up behind me with a mom... There are a wife or a little, just a little, just like a tiny little woman inside the car. And she puts her head out. And she says, I think your bike is too light. <laughs> and I just could not take it at that point because I was already feeling insecure enough. I just revved it, went right through that red light and just got as far away from that minivan as I could. I just could not take the shame. <laughs> but the point of telling you all of that is that waiting is really, really hard. Why is waiting so hard for us? If you're the person that goes up to the grocery line and you, you quickly scan the self-checkouts and then you do the math and you look down the rows, it worth me to go down here to check to see which lane I should do and that's too many people, you know what I'm talking about. If you're the person in traffic that switches from one lane to the next lane because you think you're going to be able to get around that semi quicker, you know what I'm talking about. If you have a little kid that's three years old and they're hell-bent on putting on their own shoes so you can leave on time, you know what I'm talking about. Waiting is so difficult. Why? Because our bodies are ruled by desire and craving. We are so often controlled by the things that we want, and we want them right now. We don't have a waiting culture. We have an instant culture. And waiting on God means that you can't have it when you want it, how you want it. You have to trust God to give it to you. Maybe some of you have very deep-seated things that God has promised you, desires in your life, and you've been waiting on them. And it just hasn't been coming around how you thought or when you thought it would. And you're wondering, God, where are you in this? And you've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and you've been waiting, and it still hasn't been showing up. And this is where Proverbs 3, 5 comes in. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. God, why wouldn't you give Sarai and Abram a baby earlier on? Why wouldn't you give it to them right here and right now? 
Do you trust God? God, you're not showing up. Maybe we need to figure it out on our own. Take my servant. Go have a baby for me and it'll be mine. And this is the way we'll do it. Are you trusting God? You know, I've told you before, I love smoking meat. I really enjoy just barbecuing and I really enjoy the ritual process that goes about it. I've not really been too tempted about the pellet grills or electric grills or propane, the things are automatic. I really enjoy just getting to go in and load the charcoal basket and load up the grill and season it and prep it the day beforehand and monitor the temperature. And here's the thing, though, about smoking meat. You can pull your, your, your good, your meats off sooner than they're supposed to and they're cooked through. But something happens while you're waiting there. You know, a really good roast, depending on what you're doing, will go between 4 to 12 hours. And something magical happens if you wake up at 5 in the morning to get that roast out for dinner time. In that process, you can pull it out after a couple hours and it's cooked through and maybe it tastes really good, but you've got that really good jaw workout going where it's yeah, 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 chewy, 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 chewy. But in that 7 and 8 and ninth and 10th hour, something amazing starts happening to that meat where it becomes that tender fall off the bone, craving, story kind of meat, legend kind of thing that you want to talk about and have at your cookouts tomorrow, probably. <laughs> Rushing the process makes you, gives you results that are not ready for consumption. In the waiting, things are happening. Hebrews 10.35 says, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. There is a direct link between God's promise and you trusting God and waiting for God's word to be accomplished in your life. Last week, I quoted a pastor's wife that preached a couple of years ago, months ago. She said, God speaks, God does. But in the time from God speaking to him doing is probably the hardest moments in your life. In the waiting, it's when you're just waiting there, waiting for God to move. But in the waiting is where really, really good things happen in you. It's in the waiting that God starts working on that discipleship process in you, creating the new person he promised and getting away with the old stuff. It's in the waiting that God builds your trust and reliance on him. It's in the waiting that you have opportunity to silence your body and assert control over it, that you're not ruled by your desire. It's in the waiting that you begin to grow. It's in the waiting that you give space for God to display himself and bring glory to his name. You know, God answers Abram. He's faithful to his promise in Genesis 15, 4. But he waits till a moment where nothing could be attributed to Abram. And all glory goes to God. There are hundreds of thousands of people that have had babies in our history. But we are still thousands of years later talking about one child that was born out of an impossible situation. Because the glory goes to God.
In the waiting, we give space to God to display himself. In the waiting, we have opportunity to practice our perseverance. Jeremiah 17, verse 5 through 10, it talks a little bit about this. It says this, this is what the Lord says, Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans or rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Did you know that when you're pushing and pressing and forcing an issue, you're actually relying on yourself instead of trusting God? They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank, the roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat, worried by the long months of drought. Their leaves stay green. They never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts, examine their secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to their actions, to what their actions deserve. Your hearts are a tricky little jerks. They want to trick you into thinking that this is the thing you need most. They want to rationalize the truth and rationalize a decision to make it sound like this is the most logical thing I could be doing. But if you're not careful, you'll realize that it's not spurred on by truth, it's spurred on by desire and impatience. When you're waiting, that's the time for you to start trusting God and see what he's doing in you. In those valley times between the high points in your life and the mountains, some incredible things are happening. Some incredible things that God's growing and building in you. Trusting God is so hard because the things we most desire most in life are so personal and painful. Maybe you're waiting on that positive pregnancy test. Maybe you're waiting on that right house to pop up and to not get bought immediately. Maybe you're waiting for that spouse or partner waiting for that next job opportunity or whatever it is, fill in the blank for you. I don't know what it is, but maybe you're in a waiting season right now. And church, my encouragement into you is to sit in that and ask God, what are you doing in me right now? Because I guarantee you he has not left you. I guarantee you that he will accomplish his word given to you. But when you rush things, you jeopardize relationships. When you force an issue, you trust yourself instead of trusting God. But when you wait, magic starts to happen. Church, I just want to invite you to stand right now. We can actually go to worship lighting here. I want to end today with just reading a psalm as our altar call and just time of ministry. I just want to give you a space in a moment right here, right now. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's paying attention to you. Is what's the thing in your life right now that you're waiting for? Are there any promises that God's given you? Things that you felt like should have happened by now, but you're still waiting. 
Maybe you're living in the aftermath of rushing a decision. Maybe there's some fallout to your choices and you're having to clean up and do some healing. Then this psalm is for you today. It acknowledges that hurt. It acknowledges our pain. It acknowledges the struggle, but it also throws our hope and confidence back onto God. So I'm gonna read this over you today. And as I read it, if it helps you or relates to you, would you just internalize it and make it your personal prayer right now as a response into this word today? This is Psalms chapter 13. It says, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall, but I trust in your unfailing love. Verse five, I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Father God, right now, I just thank you, God, that you see every person in this room. You know the struggles, you know the personal heartache, God, you know the things that we are just so desperately waiting for you to accomplish in our lives. And thank you, God, that you meet us right where we are at. God, I pray you would start strengthening the weary legs, the tired arms. God, I pray you would start building up our endurance, God, and create hearts, God, that just want to trust you, God, that we throw our reliance on you, God, over what we can see or what we can even do. Thank you, God, that you're not dead, that you are alive, that you're moving, that you're a mighty God, and that you are, you hold to your word, Father. God, I pray that the tired heart, the desperate heart, the heart in pain, God, right now, God, remind them of the things you've been promising them. God, I pray that they would throw their confidence on you, Father. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen.